You are listening to the Mother Lab Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Mother Lab Podcast. Mother Lab stands for Maternal Outcomes for Translational Health Equity Research. Thank you for tuning into our January episode. I am Amaya Menta, and I am the liaison for the Advocacy Committee and a current sophomore at Tufts. Thank you, Amaya. My name is Iman and I'm the chair of the Community Engagement Advocacy and Policy Committee at the Mother Lab. I'm a senior here at Tufts. And we are so excited to announce our guest speaker for this month is Dr. Tiffany Green. We could go on for hours and hours about Dr. Green's accomplishments, but right now we're just gonna give a little brief overview. So Dr. Green is an economist and population health scientist who is nationally recognized expert in racial and ethnic and nativity disparities in reproductive health. She is currently the Assistant Professor of Population Health Sciences and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research has focused on the understanding of the individual, family, and structural level determinants of racial disparities, and most recently following focusing on racial and ethnic biases and the outcomes of child and maternal health. Thank you so much for having me today. Of course, we're super, super excited for you to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for taking out of time from your busy schedule. You make an incredibly impressive introduction, Dr. Green. We know we only touch upon a few of the things that make up your focus, and we would love to hear more. Uh, (laughs) We are wondering, how did you get started in studying racial inequities in public health? Wow, that's a really (laughs) long winding story, but I guess it's a podcast, so we have time. Um, As you in the initial introduction, I am trained as a PhD economist. That is not necessarily a field that's known for health, even though we have lots of health economists. Um, And I think, um, you know, I was really thinking about how do I, um, how do I answer these interesting questions? And health economics really provided this opportunity to answer interesting questions using methods, some would say rigorous or not, but economists like to brag about our rigorous methods, but it was a way of just answering questions that interested me and health and well-being are just so fundamental for us to reach our highest potential. And I have always believed, and I think the evidence supports, that if we can intervene early in life, that, that gives people the basis on which to reach their potential, whether it's education, um, later life health, their work, all of those things matter when it comes to health. And so I, I, you know, I realized at the end of my um, time at UNC, which is where I went to grad school, that I was a health economist that didn't actually know all that much about health. <laughs> and to address that, um, I did what probably no grad student should ever do. Please don't do this. I applied to one job. <laughs> And luckily I got that gig. Um, It was the Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholars Program. Unfortunately, it's now defunct, um, but there is a program now, the RWJ Health Policy Scholars Program that trains PhD students. And this postdoc was just completely transformative for my life and the way that I approach my work. It was like being dumped into an interdisciplinary seat. You know, we would meet around the table. There were two cohorts, usually at one time. And we had, you know, a medical anthropologist, a calm studies person, environmental epidemiologist, a medical historian or historian of science. 
And, and that just really caused me not to just to fall in love with interdisciplinarity, but to understand how those tools were really fundamental for addressing these complex problems of population health disparities. And you know, as I, as I may have mentioned before or not, my dissertation looked at um, maternal behavior and childhood asthma. And so from there, I started really trying to look at other dimensions of um, childhood health and infant health. And that's really how I got started, the ball rolling when it comes to looking at some of these problems. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I think it's super, super important that we consider these like intersections of these fields that we wouldn't first um, think to be related to health. I know reading that you were a PhD in um, economics, I was like, hmm, I wonder how that kind of translated. But I'm actually taking a course right now. It's called One Health, and it's just about like the interdisciplinary nature of how to approach public health issues. And I just think it's so incredibly important that all these different disciplines, when they come together, there's such a big change that can be created instead of just focusing on such a niche, like clinical med perspective. So this is super, super impressive and we're super excited to hear more about it, but we would love to hear a little bit about your research right now on in gynecology and just maternal health. Oh man, that is a long story. Where should I even start? Well, one of the things that I've been focusing a lot on is really understanding how, um, how discrimination at the structural and individual level um, affects disparities in health and well-being. And so one, one thing I've been looking at um, lately is a policy called birth cost recovery in Wisconsin, where I live. This is a policy that requires unwed fathers, for the most part, um, to, re to repay part of the Medicaid birthing costs. And so um, you can imagine how, especially if these are disproportionately low income families, how that might um, adversely affect the children. The money does not go to the children. It goes to support child, um, child support offices, et cetera. And my county, economists like a natural experiment. So my county in 2020 got rid of, of birth cost recovery collections going forward. And so we are um, looking at using administrative data, what the potential impact of rolling back this policy might have had on uh, racial disparities in birth outcomes. So we're really excited about that. And I'm also doing some other research, trying to get funding to look specifically at black birthing parents and what their experience has been like of birth cost recovery, given that they are far the most disproportionately affected by this policy because um, due to structural racism, black, um, black Americans are less likely to be insured, to be on public health insurance, and uh, more likely to be unmarried. So that combination of factors have made Black families in the state more vulnerable to being um, affected by birth cost recovery. So that's one of the projects that I'm really excited about. And it, it really speaks to sometimes the importance of where you are. I think national data sets are great. I got my start using national data sets. I still use national data, as you can probably see from my work. But a lot of the interesting questions that we have are often geographically bounded. And Wisconsin is a really important state to be able to look at this question because a lot of states don't still you know, implement this policy because they have determined that it adversely affects children and their families. But Wisconsin still does it, not my county. 
But as more states um, consider policies like this, for example, Utah is, I believe at last time I saw it, attempting to um, make sure that dads pay for prenatal care. And it's not that, that people shouldn't be responsible for their children, but we have to consider how context makes it more challenging for some people to pay these costs, et cetera. So um, I think this research will have important implications for policies such as birth cost recovery and Utah's similar policy moving forward. So that's one project that I'm pretty excited about. Um, another project that I'm working on, or rather group of projects that I'm working on, is trying to better understand how discrimination um, impacts um, racial disparities in birth outcomes. I think we have, you know, we've observed these disparities and the assumption is that implicit and explicit or implicit bias rather affects these birth outcomes when if you, if you talk to social psychologists, which I do, a good friend of mine is a brilliant social psychologist, we know that implicit bias really affects communication and not necessarily treatment. So I'm interested in working on how uh, implicit and explicit bias at different levels of aggregation um, affects the birth-related disparities that we're seeing. So that project is sort of in the works. Um, we're trying to get funding for that now, but I'm really excited about the possibilities of trying to understand whether and how different types of biases um, are correlated or, or cause the birth disparities that we're seeing. So those are two of the big projects that I've been working on lately. Yeah, they both sound amazing. I definitely agree that it's like it's very difficult to show an association when I think in a lot of studies where it's more quantitative to actually show an association. And I think it definitely does begin with acknowledging the bias that biases that do exist. And in order to show the association, you must first like recognize that they are there. I was also wondering, given your background from an economics perspective, how would you prove the racial disparities in birth outcomes? So prove is a is a, a very strong word, and yeah, yeah. economists are really funny about causality. I think, um, you know, I think there are a couple of things that we can do. One is that we can establish that a disparity exists. So we can look at the data and say, well, you know, we can see on average that black birthing people have higher rates of preterm birth, for example. Um, we can get into the problematic ways that we classify race on birth certificates. That's a story for a whole nother podcast, but we can establish that. The tough part is trying to establish the mechanism. And, and the reality is there are some people that think, and I tell my students this all the time, that a disparity is just a difference, that these, 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 these inequities are just driven by individual level behavior. And that is the approach that some people take in, in, the work, in this work. My approach is that the evidence suggests that many of these differences are likely structural, that they, are, that they emerge from a, a long history of exclusion and inequality. Uh, racial and otherwise that shapes people's access to resources and in turn um, impacts their birth outcomes. And so I am um, more interested in understanding how we can change people's environments through changing social structures, because that's where we can intervene. I think when we intervene at the individual level, it's not necessarily a bad thing. 
we don't get rid of soup kitchens because we're trying to eradicate systemic poverty. But my, my approach has been, let's go big or go home. What are the social structures that undergird these disparities? And if we can identify this relationship, what might happen if we address those, um, those social structures? So that's kind of the approach that I take. Yeah, thank you for sharing that because it is really, really important to um, understand these different levels that we can put interventions at. So that like individual, individualistic level versus the like whole population and encompassing that. And it seems so daunting almost to try and solve like a whole societal level problem. But the idea is not that it's a solution, but it's that it's kind of working towards this bigger goal. And I think that's awesome. And the research that you said is just so amazing to hear about. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm also taking a class, Race, Ethnicity, and Health here at Tufts with Professor Flores. And we've discussed a lot about system level interventions and individual ones. But I think something that definitely has come across our class this whole semester is our discussion on the importance of our social environments and how we can, we can try and change those factors in order to promote better birth outcomes. So that definitely does sound like something that needs to be delved into more. I think, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, when we focus on birth outcomes, I think we almost are too late. There have been a lot of conversations about uh, intervening at pregnancy and I'm really thrilled to see the policy movement that's been happening. For example, um, uh, Lauren Underwood, a congresswoman from Illinois, has been spearheading the Black Maternal Momnibus, which looks like it's going to be passed in its entirety. So a very exciting time that, that goes beyond looking at medical care and addresses the social determinants of health, you know, housing, food insecurity, all those things are vitally important. But I think when we focus on pregnancy, it's too little too late. Um, there's a there's a quote and I and I don't know I can't say it exactly off the top of my head, but it's it's basically a, a quote by a physician that said something like, um, you know, folk, you know, trying to address this problem um, while just focusing on pre on pregnancy and babies is just morally sound and scientifically illegitimate. And it's the truth. If we're just focused on on people with uteruses because they can give birth, we've missed the point. We've missed an entire uh, span of life where we can intervene and make sure that they are healthy, not because they might give birth, but because they're human beings that deserve good care and, and deserve to grow up in environments where they can reach their highest potential. And, and so I think a lot about not just how we can intervene during pregnancy, but how we create better environments for everybody, whether or not they choose to give birth. Yeah, I completely agree. Definitely, like, it's a lifetime thing, and it shouldn't just start the minute that you become pregnant. We've also worked with the Boston Public Health Commission that focuses specifically on preconsumption health, so the reproductive years of a woman, and not just if you're pregnant or just gave birth. And I definitely think that it has shown to have a really positive impact in a child's upbringing and the family's social life. Right. And just thinking about like the factors that lead up to these birthing outcomes, like you said, it's not just when you get pregnant, it's all of the um, like 
length of your life that you've dealt with this kind of negative environmental stressors and all these implicit, explicit biases. And I know that some of your research, you actually mentioned this idea of allostatic load and just how that encompasses the environmental and psychosocial stressors that it has on the body. And I just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about that because we were just talking about the um, length of time right before pregnancy. Sure. Well, there's been a conversation about allostatic load. So, so in the context of pregnancy and reproduction, the Arlene Geronimus many years ago advanced a theory that, uh, that, that Black women are, were aging more rapidly. So if you go under the skin, for example, why you saw these, these worse outcomes um, at certain ages was because Black women were, or rather Black birthing people, were aging um, prematurely because of the, the wear and tear of racism. And you know, it's, it's sort of challenging because intuitively it, it makes sense. I'm not sure if we have the most robust evidence for that right now. Um, there's been some interesting work by Emily Harville and other folks, um, I think Emily's at Tulane, Dr. Harville's at Tulane. Yeah, I think she's at Tulane, but anyway, um, so, the challenge is, can we actually measure allostatic load in pregnancy? Pregnancy is a state of inflammation. <laughs> you know, it's, you're, everything goes haywire. And so I know this obviously from my work and on a personal level, everything goes haywire in your body. But the evidence that we have, the little evidence that we have so far, provides a pretty mixed picture of whether differences in allostatic load are driving uh, differences in, in birth outcomes between black and white birthing people. And so that's the tricky part for people to understand. Like, I think, again, weathering and allostatic load are compelling. I, you know, I think there is a lot of work, there's work, more and more work being done to try to confirm um, whether and how relevant that is. But I would say I remain a little bit skeptical of whether that is the underlying explanation or the most important underlying explanation for um, Black-white differences in reproductive health outcomes. And I think that's what science is all about. You try not to go in with too many priors because we have to be open to whether something is true or not. Do I think that racism is very much linked to adverse birth outcomes? I do, but I have to be open to the possibility that I'm wrong. Um, and or that I'm not measuring things correctly. So with allostatic load, uh, are we measuring the right things that are really linked to these disparities in birth outcomes, for example? And that is, I think, a big challenge of doing this work, you know, making sure that you are rigorous at each step of the process, that you are saying, what do, what do I think is true? And how can I try to disprove that so I can be sure in my mind that I am doing the best work I can at this very moment and understanding that I might be wrong, right? So I, I think a lot about how, you know, how things, how I think things now that I didn't necessarily think before many years ago and, and being open to that change and that growth is a key part of being a good researcher. Thank you so much. I completely agree. And I think that having a growth mindset and with science always evolving, it definitely is something that I've learned. And like, I think that things that I learned about when I was a freshman and now like they have progressed and they have changed and they might even surprise me. But I think that researching, we have to be open to all possibilities. And hearing you say that really does show me about 
all the difference between causality and association and the fact that things may not be what we expect them to be. Right, and it's also, I think, really difficult when you're talking about public health because we feel so passionately about these issues. And I found this really big difference going from molecular bio-research to public health research and to still keep that same unbiased look into research and to not let your passions kind of impact that. So I think that's really important that you brought that up. And I think it's okay to have passions. Like, it's okay to, you know, I, I can't do this day in or day out if I don't care. But economists do tend to be a little more, I wouldn't say dispassionate because we all have our biases that we bring to the table, but we don't necessarily think that an intervention is, is going to work just because. <laughs> or, you know, how, my, my question is, well, how do we know? Um, what, what could be the intended and unintended effects of policies? Um, you know, and so I think that is some of the challenges that those of us who work in public health spaces feel that those, those sort of competing priorities and those competing um, ways of viewing the world. And where I land, where I land is that I, I operate from a place of, of humility that I don't know everything and I don't want to know everything, but I do want to work with people who know the things that I don't know. And the second thing is to not be in love with my own hypotheses. You have to all, the data very, very rarely go how you think it's going to go. Very rarely have I had a paper idea and it flow perfectly from beginning to end. There's always bumps in the road. There's always decisions that you make about the data that you're like, wait, that's not how I thought it was going to work out. But the important part of that is to be transparent about all of that, to be committed to uh, reproducibility so that people can go in and replicate what you have done. I mean, I think that kind of transparency and rigor in science is super important, not just for us internally, but to continue to gain credibility outside of the academy. You know, a lot of that um, are forces that we can't control, that forces that are anti-education, that are anti-science. But part of what we can do to be more credible, the things that we can control are transparency and honesty about what our, what our assumptions are, and what our processes are. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. It, it really is very insightful hearing you talk about it. And I think that a lot of the times when we're conducting research or researching about it, we have a fixed idea of what we're looking for. And I think at times I may just be looking for like things to support what I said, but that may not be the case. So it's really great hearing you say that. Um, I, we were also uh, wondering, so we often see this model of holistic health exemplified in the public health field. However, it is often ignored when considering clinical medicine. How can the two be incorporated to increase maternal health outcomes? That's a really, that's a really tough question. Um, I think there's been a push to seeing clinical environments or, or healthcare systems adopt some of these social determinants approaches. Like I can think of right. one, one, one health system in Ohio, for example, that help, is helping address food insecurity, for example. And I think that, um, I, don't, I don't know that they should be, you know, really like bifurcated in this very distinct way, but I do think there's a unique role for public health and we are seeing the effects of not funding public health like we should have. 
in the middle of this pandemic? What do I mean by that? Um, a lot of the policies, um, you know, at the federal level and even the state level have focused very much on individual behavior. And that is a tactic and, and an approach that is very clinical. This idea, okay, we're gonna eradicate the pandemic by getting everybody vaccinated. Well, that doesn't tell you much about why people choose and choose not to be vaccinated. That doesn't tell you much about the barriers that people have to getting vaccinated. For example, I even see this a lot in public health where people talk about certain populations, usually black and brown people as being vaccine hesitant. But when you dig into the data, often the picture is much more complicated. For example, there was some work I can't remember whether it was the Kaiser Foundation, Family Foundation, or Pew, that showed that um, when they interviewed um, some Hispanic male workers, for example, one of the, the concerns that people had was not the shot side effects necessarily, but the fact that they didn't have time to, to take off of work, to not just get the shot, but recover from the effects of the shot. So I think understanding those underlying factors isn't necessarily a strength of, of clinical medicine, but it is a strength of public health and the social sciences. And so this is a really practical and tangible and ongoing example of why we need public health. I think that modern medicine is a, is a, is a miracle, and I think people should have access to high quality medicine. But public health is also, I think, a really needed and distinct entity that has been underfunded for many, many years. And we are seeing the fallout with COVID. So I, I think that, do I think that public health and, and medicine should work together? Absolutely. Do I think that medicine should take over the functions of public health um, in an inadequate way that it, like it often does? No, I do not. <laughs> so that would be my answer to that question. Yeah, I completely agree with you. This like intersection between the two fields is so often ignored, but I think it's really coming to light right now when we see how bad the effects of the pandemic has been when public health has been such, like you said, a consistently underfunded sector of healthcare. But we see how much the impacts are when all the different disciplines are working together. Um, yeah, so again, we just wanted to say such a big thank you for all of your information and just such insightful comments. And we loved having this conversation with you today. So thank you for having me. It was fun. I love podcasts. So much. Yeah, it was so insightful and informative. And we hope to check in with you again in the near future. Bye.